from backseat baby to a career at National Public Radio and the spaces in between. Anya Grunman, the Grinnellian shaping the sound of NPR. We could take it slowly Or we could get insane No one ever got anywhere By playing it safe This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On today's show, we talk with Anya Grunman from the class of 1989. She's the Vice President of Programming and Audience Development at NPR. But once she was just a wide-eyed, angsty college student, listening to the radio and writing scathing editorials in Scarlet and Black. From Grinnell to the world of public radio and back. We'll also talk with Eric McIntyre, professor of music here at the college, about the musical compositions he created in response to the new exhibit in the Museum of Art. We're talking music, art, creativity, listening, and the spaces in between. That's coming up next, after I remind you that the information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. I see a lot of overlap between the values of National Public Radio and Grinnell, especially the drive to learn about things far and wide, really spread your liberal arts wings and explore the world of ideas and people. Anya Grunman has been able to sip from that cup of eternal learning that is NPR, and now plays a big role in shaping those learning possibilities for the listeners of public radio. That same spirit of exploration which informs so much of the NPR ethos can also be traced back to her time at Grinnell. Well, one of the things about Grinnell that was great in retrospect is that we didn't have to take as many courses for our major as people at most other schools do. So there's a lot of room to explore. And I think that was the whole point is that we're there to learn and explore. So my tutorial was the comedies of Aristophanes. Hmm. So I thought for like one semester, I thought I was going to be a classics major uh-huh. <laughs> which was really fun. And I got to hang out with some really cool people. Um, I even went to emeritus professor's house and we had a Latin reading night and we had popcorn and um, it was <laughs> and they, it was fantastic. Um, and I basically couldn't translate anything and they all laughed at me. <laughs> but um, that so that was a fun sort of club to be in. And then I became an English major. But I also uh, spent a summer studying biology at the Wilderness Field Station. I, w- I basically, I got my biology credit. We called it canoeing for credit. But um, <laughs> it was very experiential, which I loved. And I did music and tried to throw myself in experientially into the different facets of academic subjects, but also uh-huh. in terms of the extracurricular things like editing the newspaper, being in music yeah. ensembles, you know, going on. Wilderness Field Station activities. So yeah. I, I really appreciated the freedom and flexibility of that. Uh-huh. Um, Being able to spread your spread your liberal arts wings. Exactly. Fly in all the directions. I definitely you did that. <laughs> That's good. What experiences, obviously, maybe working at the newspaper, but what other experiences at Grinnell can you point to as being kind of formative in leading you down your path towards NPR? Well, I, at NPR, I actually um, was really focused on music at the beginning. I was an English major at Grinnell, but I yeah. also spent just as much time 
doing music. I was in the Grinnell Singers. I studied piano. Uh, I was in the general choir. Also, um, I I also was in the Collegium Musicum. So I mm-hmm. sort of all over the place with the music stuff and really always focused on that. And so the combination of that with my English major and wanting to, you know, writing and um, I brought with me into my public radio career right away because I was always from the beginning very music focused in terms of connecting people with great music, the ideas and issues around music, the creative experience of music, the communal connectivity that music brings to us that's beyond the spoken realm. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, that's really important to all of us and uh, the great connective tissue that music brings and figuring out ways to have that add value to people's lives and engaging yeah. with that. And so that spirit um, comes from also being someone who loves to m- play music with others. I love being in places where we're where new music happens because of the combination of people in the room mm. and that spirit of fun and not necessarily the performance, but actually the act of being together and making something. Mm. Um, the creativity and craft and sort of connection that that creates. And also yeah. like, it's a great way to get together with, with people and not have to talk, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you sort of connect with people in another dimension. And I'd say the same thing about why I love dancing too. Mm. Yeah. Also another way to connect with people beyond the word. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly feel that. And I think even just thinking about my most memorable concerts that I've attended, they always entail some like connection with the artist. Um, And I don't know if you know either of these bands, but Low Cut Connie and Warren Treaty, they start the show by basically saying like, we love you. Like we want to be here. Like we want this to be a very connective experience, which is something that I think just kind of sets me up in like a very good framework to just enjoy the music in a way that is so beyond what we normally experience in life and talking to people and things like that. Right. And feeling isolated in certain ways and um, having another dimension to connect with people is really fantastic and important. And um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> How did you get interested in radio specifically? We have something at NPR called Backseat Baby, which is a lot of people who are now listening. Actually, their parents strapped them in the backseat uh-huh. and like <laughs> they had to listen. And yes. you know, at a certain age, they thought that was like fine. And then they were horrible. like, turn that off. That's horrible. Like, yeah. I give me my music. Uh, and then like around <laughs> mid-20s, they're like, hey, that's actually, that wasn't so bad. And like, I'm driving, I'm commuting to work and I need something. And um, I want to make sure I can talk to people about what's going on in the world and I need to understand what the heck is going on in the world and that actually, you know, NPR is pretty good for that. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly had that same experience. <laughs> so uh. I listened to, um, I, I grew up in Baltimore and so I was, I listened to a station called um, WJHU, which no longer exists, but in, um, and I really felt a connection to that. And then when I came to Grinnell, I remember my last semester, I was living off campus house and I was wondering what the heck I was going to do with myself. And I was listening to Fresh Air with Terry Gross and she was talking to such interesting people. And Mm -hmm. I just 
all of a sudden had this sense of like, wow, this, I mean, listening to somebody, having a really smart conversation with somebody about something I never even thought about yeah, and feeling like, wow, there's so many interesting people out in the world <laughs> and I feel like really connected to this and it's speaking to me. And so it's a very powerful medium, right? Which is some, a human being talking and breathing right in your ear about really important things or funny things or meaningful things and making and helping you maybe readjust your thinking. Um, it's a, it's a very intimate connection. And so there's something really profound about that. So that's one, yeah. one reason. Mm -hmm. So after you graduated from Grinnell, you ended up moving to Flagstaff with the whole gaggle of Grinnellians, I think eight of you in all. <laughs> yeah. Basically uh, one of our friends is very, she was very persuasive and she convinced us all to move there. <laughs> I came five months later because I was I stayed for an extra semester to uh -huh. study music, and I was also working at the liquor store downtown. Nice. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, so I I went and we moved into a big house together, and we all did different things, and because I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh huh. Um, it was like first year all over again, living yeah, in the uh, dorms. Exactly. <laughs> but I started um, taking classes at the university for a master's in music. And I kept walking by the radio station that was in the music building. And I just kept walking mm -hmm. by and so I was like, one day I'm going to walk right in there. And <laughs> I did. Uh, and then I, I walked in and I was like, I'm interested in volunteering. And then I, I'm sure I don't remember this right, but it seems to me like the news director happened to be standing there. It was like, oh yeah, we need someone to go out to the Navajo reservation and cover this press conference. Why don't you go do it? And then they gave me some equipment and I drove out there and I did it. I had no idea what I was doing. And then I uh -huh. taped it and I asked people questions and I came back and then one of the guys helped me make a radio piece out of it, a short yeah. radio spot. And I thought that was magic. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then I was, did a little bit of that. And then the music head of the radio station was also a classical music station. He was like, we need another music program. Or why don't you come up here? And there was this, the station had basically created another level. So there was this like second floor that was barely a person's height. And I went up there, sort of crouched over and looked at, and there were all these CDs. And then I started programming the music for the station. And I started their first music database. And then they actually put me on the air uh, Friday and Saturday nights. I was not, nice. I was not that good, but it was <laughs> enjoyable. And I also um, was teaching 20 piano students at that time and also teaching writing to high school students in special programs. So I, yeah. I was doing a lot of stuff. And I rode, yeah. and I didn't have a car and I rode my bike everywhere. Uh-huh. And you were learning. I mean, yes. part of, I feel like, especially with um, radio, like, I don't think everybody's born, like, comfortable doing that. You know, you have to learn. <laughs> yeah. So. That's why, Historically, in public radio, internships have really been a great pathway because yeah. it gives people real exposure to the craft. Back then, we were using reel-to-reel -reel tapes and razor blades, and <laughs> I have scars to prove it. Wow. Yeah, and then in order to mix complicate, make things that were beautiful and complicated, you had to you had five different reels, and you had to sync them up, and you had to have, you know, basically direct. It was like directing some kind of movie or something. Um, now we just have digital editing, which makes, makes it a lot easier. Yeah. A little of the craft <laughs> is gone from it of the, let's put on a show and being ready to perform 
a mix, we called it. Yeah. Uh, but it's been fun to see the technology evolve. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly take that for granted. I can't imagine doing anything like this without having a computer. <laughs> so how did you then end up in uh, Washington, D.C., working at, at NPR? I applied for an internship. Um, <laughs> that seems classic. Uh, and I, so I was an intern and I worked on in the cultural programming department. And I was the second choice intern, which meant the first choice intern had to do all of the boring interny things. Uh-huh. And the second choice intern, which they didn't normally have, but someone decided like they actually, they wanted me to come, um, gave me some space to try to be helpful. And so I uh-huh. kind of made up <laughs> things to be helpful with, which turned out to be a great opportunity. So I, yeah. I would be like, I'd notice somebody, there was a part of the show that people thought was a pain to write and it was short. And I was like, hey, you want me to try my hand at that? Sure. I also, um, I convinced the show to do a national contest about how people fell in love with music for the first time. And then people wrote mm. in, people wrote essays and then we judged them. And then I got to, I got to book the winners, five winners at the studios and have them what we call track their essays, which are short essays. And I got to do that whole process and then we put them on the air. Hmm. So that was a fun project. I still have one of the reels. Nice. So so I'm sure the the path from intern to, you know, the head of NPR music and where you are now was a long grinding path that took a lot of work and innovation and creativity and, you know, kind of putting yourself out there like you just talked about. Um, but that innovation really came into fruition as you spearheaded the launch of NPR Music back in 2007. How did you make that happen? It was actually, the organization was looking for a way to do something in the digital space on the web that was innovative. Uh And they thought, we have so much music content across public radio that they thought there was an opportunity there. So I was running the music division at the time. And so we spent some time creating a plan um, for what it would look like for us to do a big sort of music site for public radio. And originally we thought that we'd just take all the stuff we were doing on the radio and put it online and we would organize it by interviews and concerts and recommendations and um, live streams. And we would sort of, that the website would be an aggregation collection. Yeah. Just a repository. Right. And that we would sort of foreground that. And then it was pretty soon obvious to me that we're in a new space where it's a different experience for people to click on something and engage on the web and it's very visual. So just taking the things we were doing on the radio and putting them online felt like a half measure. Yeah. Um, So we knew it would always be the backbone of what we did because people are really interested in like, I heard that thing, I want to share it with friends or um, I want to find something. And so our content, which was always ephemeral and never searchable, and once it was out there, you never heard it again, it became much more able to be part of the conversation and people be able to engage with it. But um, but that's not going to be enough. And so we thought about what are some things we could do that were really web first. And so mm-hmm. we created a, I hope, I feel like it was a culture with a bunch of really creative, smart people, um, a little bit of a playground 
exploring what we could do. So when we launched NPR Music, we started with three sort of initiatives that would show that we were doing something special. And one of them was a video uh, series called Project Song, where we had where we basically did a little documentary of somebody creating a song based on prompts that we gave them. Um, and then we started a blog with Carrie Brownstein from yeah. Slater Kinney. Mm-hmm. And we had a, a music recommendation list from Yo-Yo Ma. <laughs> now, some of those things were easier to make than others. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but when we put them all out there, it sort of helped sit, tell the story of like, yeah, we're doing some cool stuff and we're thinking outside of the box. Yeah. And um, that got all those things got like equal attention. Um, and it sort of gave us confidence that, yeah, we were on the right track. We should be doing something interesting that made sense for the medium. And there weren't people really doing pro- music programming with, for web first at the time. That wasn't a big thing. So, uh-huh. so I think we were pretty early. Um, and that's the environment that the Tiny Desk came out of. Yeah. Um, a sense of adventure and play and sort of experimentation and like, let's try things. Yeah. And so that's one of the wonderful things that came out of that. Yeah. Yeah. That really um, exploded in a, in a good way. Yeah. It just keeps growing and we're just so yeah. thrilled with it. It's such a now iconic part of what NPR does. And at the time we had no idea. Like I remember the first times we did it, we even tried to do like live webcasting, but of course, then the musicians were late and then Bob <laughs> had a James Brown doll that, we could, he would sing if you pressed a button. And so we were trying to put things like on the live stream that would be distracting. So we put the James Drum doll on there and we did other things and we were like, that doesn't, <laughs> that's not going to work. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so there was the, definitely a process, but um, it's so gratifying to see how that's expanded and exploded and also pushed us in terms of genres and um, has, is a great thing also for NPR staff who work here. We get to come to the shows. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I look around my office here at Grinnell and I'm like, hmm, how could I have a concert in here? <laughs> I don't think it'd be the same. I don't, right. Ours is a very corporate cubicle-y, you know, it, it, and it, it's not very open. I don't think it would work very well. But I, I don't know if you know this, but there, there were a group of students and it's continued here that have kind of adapted Tiny Desk into a Tiny Dorm series and they put on ah, little concerts I didn't know that. In, in the dorm. I guess so, I should come visit. Yeah. Yeah, you have to come for a, a tiny dorm. <laughs> um, so music has obviously been a huge part of your life, and it was kind of your job for for a while, not playing, but engaging with it. Um, I'm curious if you can put into words what, what music makes you feel and the role that it's played in your life. Those are big, heady questions. Like, I put on my headphones and put on songs and go like longboard around Grinnell at night at like two in the morning. And like, I am completely, or it feels like alone, but yet connected to so many feelings by the music that I'm listening to. And it just, it's an emotion that I cannot tap into unless I'm listening to music, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if there's, if there's anything like that for you times where you have just felt totally different by listening to music or what what kind of feelings music lets you access or what experiences it lets you partake in that are not available to you in the rest of the world. I remember when I was 
playing piano as a teenager, which, you know, emotionally rough period in most people's lives. <laughs> um, I think it's not a stretch to say. I, I feel like I really worked through a lot of my feelings and sort of the nuances of that by playing music mm. and by playing the piano and playing phrases over and over again and thinking about like the interplay of the voices and that they're different characters and that I felt like there was this engaging in the music this way as like a personality that you're connecting mm. with um, was incredibly satisfying and it was a great sort of release for me in terms of just dealing with stuff that felt hard. Yeah. And I do think music can change your mood, obviously. It can change mm -hmm. the way you think about things. And I think it can, you know, our brains process information in ways that are unique to each of us that are structured in certain ways. And music kind of pushes beyond sort of the habits of our own brains mm -hmm. and sort of allows different patterns to be experienced. And I think that's really transformational and it yeah. can get you out of your own head in a way. Yep. Um, <laughs> and if you're spinning, it allows you to, it allows you to engage with yourself, I think, in different ways. I remember one time I went, I was in Rome by myself and I was walking down the street and I was day two of my solo adventure in Rome. And I started mm -hmm. saying to myself, like, man, I'm so sick of the way I think. Like, <laughs> I'm so done with you, Anya. <laughs> it's like, these patterns are so boring. Uh -huh. And I think like, if you listen to music, you can <laughs> like, you know, jump yourself out of some of that, the patterns and routines of the way maybe you're wired. Yeah. And I know some people think it, music is dangerous because of that. Because mm. it like can a, rewire like you in some way. Yeah. And yeah, I think it helps us work through our feelings, not just when we're antsy, pubescent teenagers, but into our adult lives as well. Um, <laughs> so now you're basically in charge of NPR's non-news content, which is a lot. I'm actually um, trying to figure out how to talk about what I do because I'm in charge <laughs> of all the podcasts yeah, and music and events and sort of some of our overall strategy about how we think about programming across our different platforms and reaching different audiences. So my official title is Senior Vice President for Programming and Audience Development. Right. Um, so I spend most of my days like thinking about how can we connect our audiences across different platforms with content that they'll love and that we can be useful to them. And that yeah. requires sometimes thinking differently about the way we're doing something. So how do we engage with people in new ways and how do we take the energy and talent that we have in our organization and have it connect with people across the radio, which we have 30 million people a week listening to, but also the 20 million monthly podcasts users. And then how we're thinking about those t tiny desk audience, which we are getting a million views a day on YouTube right now. Uh -huh. So <laughs> how do we connect with those people who we know are really young and diverse and like exciting? And you look in the comment section there and it's like so great. Yeah. How do we like, that's not on our platform, that's on YouTube, but how do we connect more deeply with 
those folks. Um, so we're thinking a lot about ways that audio can be delightful, useful, helpful to people um, across all the different places where people want to find it. Yeah. Thinking about audiences, I know, I think NPR has like a a trope or like a stereotype of like who might be a typical listener. And obviously that's changing. But from your perspective, what are you doing to kind of maybe subvert that historical idea of what what an NPR listener looks like and reach new audiences? Well, everything we make, I want to have a sort of surprising twist to it. Mm. And so that we don't feel like we're doing cookie cutter programming. Uh Um, We do want to be focused. We have the largest audio newsroom in America. And so we have hundreds of journalists on the audio side who have expertise and who have you know, are following the news and have um, following beats and and really are striving every day to help people understand what the heck is going on. And so we do have some inherent strengths as an organization. We also have um, people who think a lot about, you know, big ideas that shape the world that we're in and how do you talk about those. And so we yeah. I try to spin out new things around the, our strengths, but allow different takes on it and to have people, maybe surprising voices or interesting frames that we might not have traditionally done, like Tiny Desk Concerts or our short-form podcasts, um, Code Switch, which is a race and identity podcast, um, uh-huh. which is really great. So so really thinking about a portfolio of things that might reach people in different ways and support them in different times of their life and also different usefulness. So some things are about big ideas and how to make yourself a better person. And some things are about like, catch me up on what's going on out in the world because I need to understand the crazy, right? Yeah. And um, and then help me keep in touch with what's important in pop culture. Um, help me find great music. Like We have this opportunity to do a wide range of things and to do them in hopefully interesting and smart ways that will appeal to a wide range of people. Yeah. I think a lot of what is under your domain is kind of maybe considered like a more fun side of like journalism and radio. Like it's, you're not doing the news. Um, but how do you see your role fitting into NPR as a whole and comparing it to kind of like the news. Well, we do. We have podcasts that are the news. So I spend time, you know, up first daily news brief. We have, I mean, all of this is collaborative. Um, right. We have economics by Planet Money, Planet Money Indicator. So we have all kinds of topics and we have a foreign uh, international sort of podcast. So, um, you know, news is actually badass. I would, <laughs> I would not uh, say that, you know, there's a different, like there's fun can be had. Yeah. In all kinds of realms. I mean, being a political reporter on a campaign and being embedded with candidates can be a wild ride. Um, Certainly. And covering some of the most important issues in a whirlwind that we have right now, it can be really gratifying. And being the person who's the best at talking about that or knows the most about something is really great. So I wouldn't categorize the stuff that I do is exclusively the fun stuff. I think that, you know, we have to, you know, if you want to enjoy your life, you got to look at a lot of things as fun. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of have a broad view of fun. 
Yes. <laughs> I want to read an excerpt from the mission statement of, of NPR back when it was founded around 1970 from, from Bill Seemering uh, and ask you to think about kind of how it applies to NPR right now and your work. Um, so National Public Radio will serve the individual. It will promote personal growth. It will regard individual differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. It will celebrate the human experience as infinitely varied rather than vacuous and banal. It will encourage a sense of active, constructive participation rather than apathetic helplessness. How does that mission continue at NPR right now, and where do you fit into that? How do you think we're doing? Pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it's weird, but we're about to celebrate our 50th anniversary, and and I actually know Bill Simmering, who wrote that. He's in his 80s, uh -huh. he's in his 80s and he's the most wonderful man. Um, uh -huh. He started All Things Considered, and he started Fresh Air, and he also... He's part of a group every week that talks about the mysteries of life. But uh, <laughs> he, but th what he wrote was so prescient. Yeah. It is, in, in this podcast world, it's actually more relevant today even than it was then. But his idea was, I want to create a new sound for radio. Before public radio, before NPR, it was very much like Walter Cronk, like, you know, someone right. talking from a desk and they're talking a really formal voice and they're sort of like... Uh -huh. I am the god of the news, yeah. and I am giving you <laughs> the information. So listen up. And it was more of like the spirit of multitudes, embracing the multitudes, and multiple voices, um, digging into cultural issues, being playful. All of that stuff is in the DNA of NPR. It was also started by... I would say professors, philosophers, activists, and theater people. So there's a sense of, you know, putting on a show. And I think, yeah, I, I feel like we have things right now that are really speaking to making you, you know, helping you think about you being the best person you can be, you know, whether it's Hidden Brain or Life Kit series, um, how I built this. Uh, and then we have things that are about participation. So one of the most fun things that I've worked on is things like the tiny desk contest where we have 40,000 people participating in submitting videos for the tiny desk contest. And then we proclaim a winner and the winners have gone on to like careers, huge careers because they were yeah. anointed, but it, that participation. And then we go on a tour with the winner and we have local winners and we have people from every state in the country participating. It's just like such a joy. We just did a student podcast challenge where 25,000 middle school and high school students participated in making podcasts. Wow. Um, we have a segment on Morning Edition, which is a poetry call out where people are, where Kwame Alexander is actually making poetry with the audience. And then 30 million people, are, you know, are hearing that. Um, it's very, like anytime we do anything in the participatory realm, we get so much energy and that's incredibly fun. Yeah. Um, so that, so hit, so whether it's, on the news side, helping people think about how to vote well and how to become active, smart members of their community who know what's going on in the world or participating in making things. Um, uh, it's it's a really fun area for us to explore because I think it provides connective tissue. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those areas of, of connecting, it seems like we'll only increase in the future with, with technologies. Obviously, audio in terms of how people consume it for a long time 
you know, it was radio, radio, radio. And now with the advent of, of podcasts and, and other things and smart speakers, it's changing kind of rapidly and seeing where that goes and how that, how NPR and other places like it can capture that possibility for connection really does kind of open up some new possibilities. Absolutely. So do you think there's something special about audio as opposed to other forms of communication? What do you think? Or uh, my personal opinion as, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of people talk about like video, like video is, <laughs> video is king, especially for these young Gen Zers or whatever, wherever we're at now. Um, and like with people's decreasing attention spans in a lot of ways. Um, have you downloaded TikTok? No, I have not, but I see it on my Snapchat. Get with and the I, program, man. <laughs> I, I, I see it and I'm like, I, I cringe every time I like watch some of these videos because I'm like, what did I just watch? Like, this is ridiculous. But then sometimes I see funny, interesting stuff pop up there and I'm, I'm torn always uh, as I interact with different social media. But I think audio allows us to kind of take away some of the elements that might distract us in in life or in consuming something and kind of just absorb it in a way that maybe you can't when you're trying to pay attention to all these other things going around you when you're really just focusing on what's coming in through your ears um i feel like it's i don't know about a more like pure way of of consuming information it's it's different than the others but i feel like it allows us to kind of focus in a way that others don't necessarily. Well, it's also the primary, the primal communication. Uh-huh. Human, you know, it's like very visceral. Yeah. And also I think it, it requires your imagination. Yeah. Like I'm imagining the cubicle farm that you're sitting in <laughs> right now. Yeah, um, I'm actually in a conference room right now. Okay. <laughs> I'm the only person in here. Okay. In a conference that room. sounds really lonely. It is. There's this weird piece of, I guess, some sort of modern art staring back at me, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. Large room of empty chairs. You seem to be handling it okay. <laughs> well, I'm talking to you, so it's not too bad. You know Terry Gross of Fresh Air? You know what that is? Uh, yeah, I know, I know Terry Gross. <laughs> she, <laughs> I don't know her personally. She does none of her interviews in person. Really? None of them. They're, Are you serious? They're always like this. No way. Yep. Oh my God. That she felt it's too is... distracting to actually see the person she's talking to. Wow. I didn't know that. That changes. I'll have to reassess what I do because I detest doing, I don't detest talking to you right now, but like I love to be in the room with someone when I'm talking to them because I, I feel like I can connect better. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think she's really so introverted. Yeah, I've certainly heard that about. It. Wow, that's interesting. Um, hmm. <laughs> I mean, I guess people are saying these days we really need to be better listeners as a culture. Yeah. And take a breath while we're listening to people who we may not agree with. Mm -hmm. And take a deep breath and then empathize and take a beat. And then have a conversation, yeah. Rather than sort of, you know, reacting 
so quickly and also yeah. leave some breaks so that people might say some things that they wouldn't have um, if you were talking all the time. Uh-huh. I think if you practice that in your life, it's actually interesting <laughs> what happens. Yeah. Um, that's one of the reasons also radio is interesting. And also mm-hmm. music, I think, you know, think about what if you were to walk through a day and think about the spaces in between what people are saying or the spaces in the music and what the spaces do in terms of making that music really pop and be strong um, and the quality of the conversations when you have some space. That's my thought for you today. <laughs> well, I have enjoyed listening and talking, but especially the listening and the spaces in between. And thank you for taking the time to, to share your story and all the stories that, that you share as a part of NPR. Thank you so much, Anya. Thank you. Pack away the autumn nights Put them away, it's time to go Get ready for the cold December rain Anya Grunman is the Vice President of Programming and Audience Development at NPR and a Grinnell grad from 1989. I've come back to this conversation quite a few times since we first talked, and it's always thought-provoking and refreshing, kind of like listening to NPR. You can find some links to Anya's work on our webpage. Continuing with interacting with the world beyond the spoken realm, we're going to take a little auditory journey ourselves with Eric McIntyre, Professor of Music here at the college. There was a special exhibition on display this semester to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the opening of Faulkner Gallery and commemorate its rededication as the Grinnell College Museum of Art. This inaugural exhibition showcases the wonderful array of works in the collection, sources of inquiry and inspiration, as well as pure visual delight. The works are visually astonishing, but that's not the only way to interact with the exhibit. Eric McIntyre, professor of music, responded to the exhibit in his own way he made a series of six musical compositions in response to works from the exhibition. McIntyre came up with the idea for these compositions in a workshop over the summer with the gallery staff when he got a sneak preview of the upcoming exhibition. Along the way, I started thinking I would actually like to engage with the artwork myself as a, as a creator and that I would write new music inspired by the work that I see in, in the show. After the exhibition was set up in the gallery, McIntyre made his way through the space. As I came and I walked around the space, there was one work that really attracted my attention, and that was the, this uh, giant red dress that's hanging off the wall. And I, I realized that was probably where I was going to start because it is very, very striking. And then noting that right next to it was this work by Tangley, which I had known from when I first saw it that I wanted to deal with it because it's a, a fascinating piece that has a, a motor on it. And as the motor turns, the artwork is changing constantly and it's about anticipation and you can see something coming and you wait for it and the excitement as it comes and then it fades away and I thought that inspires a lot of music. And then that, that work when I saw it in the show is actually hanging next to a Caldermobile 
and the Calder Mobile is made from found objects, uh, things that are industrial in quality, and yet they look elegant and airy the way they're hanging with them. The colors are lighter compared to Tangley, and this contrast was also really inspiring. We're hearing the horn, McIntyre's primary instrument, but also an instrument that he made himself. Among the things that I do is I, I work with sculpture, creating what I call dangerous instruments, that is uh, musical instruments from found objects that we might think of as dangerous or that don't seem to make sense. Uh, for example, I work a lot with pitchforks and saw blades, and in this case, uh, I was inspired by the Tangley artwork itself uh, to create an instrument uh, that involves three circular saw blades on a spindle that are turned by a motor. And as they turn, they look quite dangerous with these sharp teeth on them, but as they turn, there are spent rifle brass cartridges hanging, and they ring against them and, and create gong-like sounds and ringing sounds, and they, they go perpetually, which is why I call it the Perpetuum Three instrument. And so throughout the piece, what's happening is mechanical ticking and then things that sound like they're getting louder and then fading away. And then every once in a while, a sort of glorious swooping melody that I think reflects the way the calder reaches up and sort of toward the air. piece that struck McIntyre was by Tao Lewis, making it work to be together while we can. The work itself is a fiber work and it's hanging on the wall. It's collage and it's made from uh, bits of uh, cloth, clothing, some leather pieces, seashells. It's, it's a, a big collection of all sorts of things together in this really intriguing shape. The colors are mostly dark. Um, Visually, it's very striking, and then uh, once I saw the artist's description of the work, that, um, that she describes that it's uh, considering the millions of black people who died at sea during the transatlantic slave trade, and then uh, all the things that would be lost along the way, and their secrets that belong to their communities, uh, as she says, learning systems, spiritual tra traditions, stories, information systems, and what if these things all still existed underwater? Lewis's collage contains some dark ideas, but also hope, and holding those themes together is something McIntyre tried to capture in his own collage. It's as if they're struggling to stay together, and that's why the collage is so important. And so as I was dealing with it myself, I wanted to make sure that the work had this deep undersea aquatic quality and a sense of collage, but also that there were moments of hope and moments that were just very positive. I came into the gallery when it was closed and I took my horn and just recorded myself imp improvising sounds on the horn. So every sound in there is created by a horn and wow. there's no digital editing of the sounds. And then after I'd completed the whole thing, I went back and uh, recited the poem yeah. from the artist uh, in whisper. 
The process for this one was so important to me that once I saw the piece, the, the whole idea for how it was going to work came to me. And so I knew that I was going to be improvising because I was going to be creating bits of the quilt work. And also when I did the recording in the gallery, it was dark. I didn't have them turn the lights on. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to sort of be in the space, listen to the space, look at the artwork and see shapes in the artwork. And then eventually when I created from that improvisation, uh, I had all these pieces that I got to choose from, much as the artist surely did in her yeah. creation, that she has all these pieces and, and looks at all the possibilities and puts them together. The next piece that caught McIntyre's eye was a series of 13 prints from Carol Walker. They're giant prints of images from Harper's Pictorial History of the Civil War, and as the artist calls it, with that title, annotated. And so what the artist has done is take uh, silhouettes of uh, African-American images and caricatures, uh, grotesque characters in most cases, and superimpose them over these Civil War images that show, as they say, anodyne scenes, or everyday scenes where it's not really action scenes, but just sort of peaceful, everyday scenes. Mm -hmm. And yet these grotesque silhouettes on the front showing sort of the torments of slavery and caricatures and the insults to the people. When I first saw the works and I thought, okay, what I want to do is something that has a Stephen Foster-like song quality to it, and then mess it up, mm. and, and sort of destroy that sort of s simple, peaceful imagery, much in the way the artist has, put a different look at it. Yeah. And that's where the idea of using this, this other, another one of my created dangerous instruments, the horn fork, yeah. which is a, a French horn bell welded onto a pitchfork head. <laughs> And so it's a shocking instrument, grotesque and the same thing, things that just don't seem like they belong together. And it can be played in, in a number of ways. It's essentially a percussion instrument though. And um, in this case, played with a giant washer off a tractor. So bit by bit, the horn becomes more excited. It becomes a jauntier tune, a more fun tune, but gradually starts to come off the rails as it goes faster and faster. And the pitchfork is just strumming away uh, in this fashion that I think also, like Walker's work, is commenting on the, the seeming civility of the images. McIntyre had never interacted with the gallery in this way before, as I'm sure is true for most of us, but he gained a lot from the experience. I can say this has been a, a fantastic experience for me, uh, among other things, for any artist to have a reason to create and a deadline <laughs> is good, and that I came out of this with six new works and I found that it was quite reasonably easy for me to get ideas by looking at something someone else has done it, as opposed to a purely abstract work to have um, and these are amazing pieces of art they're, they're really striking all the ones that I dealt with um, as I looked at them I was so struck that I couldn't help but think artistic thoughts and the fact that they demanded that of me that helps with my artistic growth and also writing in miniature is something I always strive to maintain that skill because it's really difficult to be concise in the arts. It's easy if you have endless time, but to say, I've got 20 minutes and I'm going to do six pieces, 
I really have to really think about that, and I found that to be a, a great challenge and something that I'm glad they, that the gallery staff made available for me. Now, I'm not a professor of music, and you might not be either, but art inspires a lot of feelings sometimes, and we have a ton of faculties within our repertoire to respond to art, and I think it's valuable to nurture those artistic thoughts in whatever way you can. In a way, I do something similar when I score my audio stories. Granted, I'm not making the music, not yet anyway, but still, it's easy to dismiss ourselves as lacking creativity, but I grow more and more confident that every one of us has artistic creative juices. So while the evil menace that is society, 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 society. conspires to sap us of these sweet nectars, do your best to let them flow. That'll do it for this last episode of 2019. Thanks for coming along for the ride, and I'll see you next year. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski, Poddington Bear, and a new band, The Jury, which includes Grinnell High School teacher Kent Mick. Kent and his band played recently on Iowa Public Radio, and you can find a link to his music on the webpage. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast, for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians.